Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thanks for being here today. Today's episode, we welcome back coaches Cal Dietz, Dan Fichter, and Chris Corfist in a truly epic multi-guest roundtable episode. The amount of coaching and learning and experience that these three individuals have between them is staggering. Cal works in the university sector, has been at the University of Minnesota since 2000 in strength and conditioning. Dan and Chris have experience in the private sector and high school, and these guys have been influencing the training practices of other coaches since the early 2000s. Speed training is always a fun topic. These three coaches are fresh off of their recent speed training clinic collaboration, Revolutions in Speed. And on the show today, we'll be talking about a variety of topics on speed, including muscular versus elastic athletes, the importance of strong feet as well as toes, reflexive plyometric and speed training, advances in weight room exercises, especially those designed for rotational development and horizontal velocity, gluten foot development, and a whole lot more. This was a really enjoyable podcast to put together. I know you guys are going to love it, so let's get on to it. Quickly, before we start, I wanted to highlight our show's two sponsors, and then we'll get to an uninterrupted podcast. We have Lost Empire Herbs and SimplyFaster.com. Lost Empire Herbs, they've been sponsoring the show for the past few years. Logan Christopher, who's been on this podcast multiple times, is their CEO. I really love the company, love what they're doing. You can get 15% off of your order by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash just fly. You can get things like Shiliagit, Phoenix Formula, Pine Pollen. Heck, I even get soap from them. Love working with the power of nature. I noticed that it is so helpful. I really enjoy using their products. And I really love the idea that I am interacting with and ingesting something that really grew directly from the ground. And now it's in a bag and then I stir it up in my drink and that's it. I just really have enjoyed approach to herbalism. Check them out, lostempireherbs.com slash just fly grab 15% off and if you just want to head to lost empire herbs you can use the code just fly second simplyfaster.com they have been with us since the beginning they are an amazing sports information sports performance uh, information and education company with their blog and if you want something to measure anything you can read out in the gym on the track so timing systems force plates bar speed velocities as well as a bunch of awesome training tools such as inertial training, blood flow restriction. Basically, if you want to measure it, check out their online store. Their customer service is awesome. They do such a good job rounding up the best sports tech. So be sure to check out simplyfaster.com. And now I give you the Roundtable podcast with Cal Dietz, Dan Fichter, and Chris Corfist. So Cal, I believe that you are the winner of the the, the cold sleep award or the chili sleep award like you sleeping in igloo these days or you know I, I don't know how you compare to chris and dan but tell me a little bit about that yeah well it's it's a, basically a mat that uh i felt like i woke up all the time just because i was hot and that seemed to be the case and so we got these mats chili sleeps and we've been experimenting with it and uh, i tried sleeping at the most extreme levels of course at 54 degrees and basically this mat just keeps you Actually, you can program it, and it'll work along with your sleep rhythms when you go to sleep and deep and REM. And and, and honestly, it's it's been highly effective for me. My deep and REM sleep skyrocketed after I started that. So it's been pretty effective in, in regards to my sleep. And so even, even if I could get seven and a half hours, I'm still getting more deep and REM sleep on five and a half, six hours now. And actually, I'm getting my full tilt, like the amount that I would need. And I feel great with six and a half. So it's almost a sleep pack, right? So uh, I feel pretty good about it. But then I cranked it down to 54 degrees and slept there for about 
two weeks, but that was, uh, I, w- I, I mean, cause it was 90 degrees outside. I get up in the morning, go to work and turn my heater on in my truck. Cause I was so, I was actually that cold, but people said it between 75 and 55. So it's actually a really good tool. Now I'm, I'm leveled out at 64 degrees during the night. That's where I set it at. And then the beauty of that, that device, it just warms up Joel. So if you set your, your wake up time, it'll warm up to 114 degrees and wake you yeah, up. Yeah, I, it's, it's an awesome feeling when you wake up in the morning and your bed's 117 degrees because it, it gets rid of all that grogginess. And that was another thing, you know, everyone's like eight hours sleep and all that. But I wear, Cal does too, our aura rings when we sleep and it tracks your sleep. And you realize you don't need, if you're really tracking your sleep and you're seeing where your sleep is going, you don't need the eight hours. You know, I used to freak about, did I get eight hours tonight? Am I going to feel good? But really, I do pretty well on six and a half. If, I've get, if I'm getting two hours of REM and two hours of deep, I feel pretty good. You guys have like competitions to see who can get the best sleep score on like six hours or something like that. That would be Chris. <laughs> yeah. Chris. Yeah. I take drugs though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, on a li- it, it, I'm on a limited budget. I just use ice uh, in my bathtub before I go to bed. <laughs> Yeah, I remember um, it was, I don't know if it was like a, just like a thrower thing, but I remember every time you would share, be on a track meet away meet, this is when I was younger and you were in the room with a thrower, like they always like to turn the air conditioning down to like 55 or 60 and I would just be like freezing like in my bed and they would be totally sound asleep. Yeah. With rings around their sheets, right? From sweating. So. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. So, hey, let's, um, let's get uh, into some of the questions here. And this is something that's interesting because, you know, it, so often we'll be talking about a topic or a new topic is coming up and at least a shade of that topic has been around for a while. And one of the things uh, like a, the narrow versus wide the infrasternal angle has been really interesting to me lately. I'm um, just thinking about that, being mindful about that. But we've always had a term for that stuff. Like back in the day, it was muscular and elastic. We just didn't measure the rib angle or anything like that or, or think about it into some of the detail I think there is now, but I remember, I forget if it was um, one of your articles, Chris, or a DB Hammer article. It was, this was back in the old InnoSport glory days, which I wish everybody listening to this was able to read those articles and things like that. But it, whoever it was wrote, they said, athletes either have strong feet or strong hips. It's kind of like, they kind of have one of those two things. And I remember there was a few years later, Sparta Science had said, there's athletes who like to bend their knees a lot and there's athletes who don't. Uh, although that kind of goes beyond the ISA a little bit, depending on your situation. But anyways, <laughs> I am curious of you guys' thoughts on that muscular versus elastic classification since perhaps the InnoSport days up until now. Kind of an open-ended question, but I'm, I'm curious you guys' thoughts on that, how you approach those classes of athletes. I know the, the InnoSport thing had different needs. You know, you need this, you need that. So your thoughts on that and the mindset of the last, you know, 10, 15 years and where it's gone? You know, it is... It's funny that the DB Hammer stuff is starting to resurface again, and people are starting to talk about moving the bar fast and all that. And you go back and you look at the DB Hammer stuff, and it's like, this stuff has been here for a while. Whoever that guy was, he knew his stuff. And it, it keeps surfacing again and again and again about what works and what doesn't work. And uh, it, it is, if you take the time and go through all those, whether they're the emails that Dan and I had with him, there's a gold mine in there. Uh, there really is. It, you just have to take the time to go through it and, and find those gems that are they're everywhere. And, you know, as you learn more, it reads different the second time or third time through after you've read something else or you've gotten different experiences. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a big one. I mean, different experiences put you in a different frame of mind. At our clinic, I put up a picture of a of a what looks like a guy running into the woods, and it's actually a dog running out of the woods. I was and, right. Yeah, Chris was right. He he was the first one to say that's a dog running, and everybody else was like, "Well, no, that's a person running into." So where you're sitting and how you frame different thoughts and your experiences are going to create you know, what you believe is, is right. So for me, that reactive ability or, or the elastic component, I think it all boils back down to altitude drops and, and can your body handle the collisions that's being created when you run fast or when you change direction, because there's a collision that's happening. And, uh, it's funny because when we got on Twitter and we're talking about force absorption, a lot of the, the scientific strength coaches, like, that's not the right term for it. I'm like, I don't really think the scientific term is as important as what we're trying to teach the body, right? So you can call it collision training, force sharing. Uh, I had a couple other things where coordinated force sharing, anti-deformation training, I, you name it, you better prepare your body for it. So yeah, it's how you collide to the ground. That's yeah. how you deal with that. And, and again, that gets into, to get to your question, Joel, everyone's going to deal with that collision in a different way. Sometimes it has to deal with tendon length, or sometimes it has to deal with your isometric strength, which again is why I think we spend so much time on isometrics is that is going to be a limiting factor. You will break eventually when, when you, when you're overcome and they can be micro breaks and you're going to dump all that energy all over the place and you're not going to have much to put back in. So, so people understand the ISOs, like it, it, it's, it'll strongly correlate with a higher level of power load right and when i say that like i've seen isos increase power output so so let me back up like for my throwers if you got two different monsters a thrower and a a high-speed sprinter in, in my college training with my college athletes isometrics correlated a lot closer to increasing power output after an isometric block with my throwers than it did with my runners hmm. Who are more tendon based? Does that yeah, make sense? One hundred percent. Which then brings you to another thing, and as these guys are talking, so then obviously I would think the sprinters are more coordinated in their power outputs. Okay, when I'm saying power too, I'm, I'm saying I, I, I think power exists anywhere between about seventy five percent with your heavy muscular types versus down to even thirty five to twenty twenty five percent. So I guess the big thing was is I'll just give you where I kind of we were playing with tendos back in the day and well, I'll train with them all the time, the throwers produced a lot more force above 60%. And then the runners produced a lot more power and force above below 60%. But they're all in the power zone. So I began to think differently because I'm like, well, well, these guys are big muscle, muscular and bound up. And then the sprinters aren't. So then what is best for most of my other teams? Well, Obviously, I want most of them because I'm not lineman blocking in football. Most of my other sports were should be more tendon based. So, training closer to that model was was a much highly qualified, I should say, highly uh, effective method. So, let's say they did isometric and we went into power based. They would have runners might actually not have very good quality about them at that time. Like their power output wasn't great out of the shoot. Like the throwers at seventy five percent. So then the question is, well, well, there's a positive correlation at the higher loads, but 
with an elite tendon athlete, it might be a negative correlation. But then what happened is the elite tendon athlete after a couple of weeks would adjust mm-hmm. and get back to being more tendon. So I think the adaptation can be negative, but, but bottom line is if the tendon athlete or the sprinter needed to get stronger, he will actually get a, a positive bump right out of the shoot. But if he didn't need to get stronger, he actually might get a negative effect out of that whole thing. But it probably, it probably serves as a preparation period for them. For, oh yeah. For, right. Because so. later, yeah. Oh yeah. Cause later it'll come out. But the point is, is if you're getting close to the peaking, you wouldn't want to do an isometric right. phase with one of those sprinters yes. unless you actually absolutely know what was going on. Right. right. And that was the plan. So, I, so looking at this, it's like, it, it's really comes down to coordination and tendon because that tendon athlete, most of my athletes right now should be tendon athletes. You know what I mean? Minus the, the, the very specific big time throwers, right. Throwing a shot put. So that makes perfect sense just from both the things that I've been hearing recently. And then even back to, I mean, you could take it even back to Charlie Francis in the 80s or 90s, where he's cited with basically saying, I'm not sure the exact phrase I wish I had in front of me. I look up the Charlie Francis training system on my computer here, but it's like some athletes do better with plyometrics. Some athletes do better with heavy weightlifting. Like some athletes do better with shorter sprints. Some athletes do better with longer sprints. And he saw those differences back then. But well, I don't think anybody was measuring you know, for yeah. some angles back then, <laughs> you know, like, well, well, the big thing too, Joel, I think at times, some, I, I, what I'm saying too, though, is, is I agree with Charlie, but there's times where an athlete might get hindered by isometrics because it wasn't the right time, but then you yeah. keep building up power. Then you're going to have to slide back to isometrics to even take him to another level. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, we all know that as advanced coaches here, there, there might like, I, I can give you examples where something works for my athletes. And 16 weeks later, after the training summer's over, it actually might make them worse. I have many yep. examples of that, right? And that's the specificity that we got to get into, you know, as a coach. That's the art of coaching, right, Joel? That, I mean, to me, that's the art of coaching that people yep. sometimes follow science too so much. So if you have that force velocity curve, I mean, I think coordination has that same curve, right? So your coordination is going to drop off depending on the type of athlete you are or how you're hardwired with your brain your motor learning capabilities, you give it too much, you're going backwards, right? So, you know, I think that's one of the cool things about the new software on the 1080 is with that force velocity curve and you start running dozens of people through and you start looking at the core curves and looking at all the functions, different people are getting to those, those numbers different ways, you know, whether it's, you know, how much horizontal force that you have compared to your power output. You're, as I'm running people through it, I'm starting to see different people get to those speeds in different ways. And that's really where you have to start coming in and thinking, all right, so now I know this is how you get to 30 meters. Where am I going to push on that to really improve that speed? And, and like Cal said, you can guess wrong sometimes because it gets tricky. But again, the force velocity curve, going back to Cal's original point, that was another cool thing with the, the force velocity graph you start to see that, that someone you think should be a lot more powerful or have a better power output really doesn't. And you can get into muscular or tendon and all those different things. So that, that new force velocity stuff on the 1080 has really opened up a whole new world on how you see people accelerate and even, you know, up to 30 meters. I, I don't, they want, they may want you to go longer with 30 meters. is fine. For me. yeah. Actually, I'll, Chris, I'll have a couple of questions for you on that, on this uh, train of, thought. I actually have a couple of things I wanted to mention first. One was 
Cal, with what you said, like the idea that you wouldn't want to have that isometric in there or that like almost like too high a force holding onto it for that sprinter trying to peak, it fits with, there was a research, I, I don't remember the people who ran it, but there was a research study I came across back about four years ago when I was writing up speed strength. And it was basically saying that they had two groups of athletes. One group did a strength phase and then a power phase. So they did like 80%, 90% of their one rep max, and then they went down to probably below 70. I don't remember the exact numbers, but basically strength and then power. And then the other group flip-flopped. And they found that there were basically groups that regardless of the progression or the phase, they just some just people just did better with power. Their RFD was better when they were going lighter, and some people's RFD was better when they were going heavier. And you got one of those people who's more than likely than not a neuro ISA elastic who does better with the lighter weights, and you give them heavy too heavy weights that could cause a problem. I will say though, like as you said though, some things work sometimes and they don't work later too. I mean, I've, I'm definitely a neuro and elastic like the epitome, and I've had times where a little bit of heavy weights a few days before a competition worked really well for me. But if I did that all the time, I would not do so well. <laughs> it was like, I could do a little yeah. bit of it here and there. But if I if it's a habit, if it's all the time, then my physiology starts to kind of take that on and my RFD will not yeah. be appreciating that. Well, I, I mean, I would do that too with, with even throwers because we've trained in the power phase and speed phase before. But, but I think the big thing, heavy loads before a track meet or any type of, you know, there's a huge hormonal dump. And that's the huge benefits that people receive from that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just by touching the heavy weight too. I mean, it's a number of things that go on, right? I mean, and, adrenaline. And they, I think that's a good point because we like to see, all right, what's the strength thing, but what's the hormonal response? And, and is that going to outweigh the, you know, the other responses that I'm trying to get? And we always were so myopic about looking at that one thing. And really, like Cal just said, what's the what's the testosterone response to lifting heavyweights but the growth hormone weight like dan's bench press program that shoots up your your growth hormone you know is is that gonna out is that a better implement for what the athlete needs at the time based from a hormonal level because i think we would all agree the most powerful thing to get you stronger is some kind of hormonal change yeah it's definitely like a it's not a one-to-one thing like i'm glad you mentioned that. like i think we like to treat it like it's just a pure linear equation but there's always a, some systemic thinking there's always a couple variables that we're kind of balancing as we go along and i think if anything i found sometimes when we're too idealistic like oh you can't do that because you know well there's another factor that might be helpful in there so it's yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's called your brain yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's going to it's going to take a different look at what you think you're looking at the brain might be interpreting completely different too i mean well, that's the other part of the equation i know bonder truck's releasing the book soon about that like all adaption is in the brain which we kind of know but not that we need to hear that from him but like the brain runs every cell in the organism essentially at some point so i mean the adaption in the brain is where you have to start well where people need to keep looking i should say right yeah yeah dan i actually had a one last thing before i get back to the 10 for 80 for chris was that you, yeah. you you had been writing a little bit and posting i think you were talking about it for the clinic as well with altitude drops and kind of mm-hmm. like you know it's funny because you might say oh revitalizing <laughs> that but like this is always something that's in the you know it's right. like, there's so much stuff in sports performance sometimes we just kind of forget or i don't know there's other things to yeah, be yeah we, we go oh my god i used to do that why don't i do that anymore yeah, yeah. And, and well interestingly yeah. enough i i mean this is probably is not super consequential but i've actually become i've probably become more fa- a fond of altitude drops recently on a level relative to the volume of depth jumps and other things mostly because 
you know, you could call it, like you said, you could call it absorbing force, a collision, you know, like do the muscles actually absorb force? But if anything, I find when you actually have to stop something on a dime, it's like the, yeah. the impulse travels through you extremely fast. Like it's like the, the way the heels hit and it comes back up into the body. If the heels do hit, it's, it's a really fast impulse. And yeah, I shouldn't do too much of it or too much like where you're really dropping down and, you know, you don't want to segment your jump. But anyways, what I was going to ask you is in light of, like, do you find that this is kind of in light of the, the elastic and power athletes that there's some athletes who respond better to more of that stuff? Like you had said you trained, I think, someone who works in your gym and mostly yeah. doing altitude drops. And I'm like, yeah, what a great thing for an elastic athlete who can tolerate it. And so I'd just be curious more of your thoughts on that one. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that DB wrote really early in, in his writings was you can watch somebody land and see if they're ready for reactive work. Right. So when they land. Are you, you, again, for lack of a better word, are you absorbing all that energy? And then what are you doing with it? Is it ready to recoil? Is it ready to give out reactive strength? So you can watch them when they land. You'll see a person who's ready for plyometric work. So I've done a lot with that. I'm going to be honest with you. We've trained a lot of people without jumping at all, just landing. A lot of people, strong athletes, weak athletes, you name it. Those collisions are happening. I don't care how you're wired. So when you go back to what Cal said, it's, it's wired in your brain. So your brain has to be really comfortable from falling out of the air and when it needs to stop and start redirecting forces the other way. So I think it's more of a nervous system conditioning of these are the impacts that are going to occur during sport. Are you prepared for them? You've got a whole bunch of things like the vestibular system, how your visual system is kind of in your feed forward process of, of, of that energy of the ground hitting your foot and you can't see the ground. You have to kind of get the used to gravity and how fast it's pulling you down. There's so many different things from a neurological standpoint that go into it that just outside of tendon strength and or reactivity, there's a lot more that goes into it, I think. Yeah. Something I noticed that was interesting with drops as opposed to maybe you could just say lower intensity stuff mm -hmm. that you do is that if you do like a, I mean, you have different ways to assess the nervous system. You could assess range of motion, like DC current on the muscle. <laughs> I noticed that the drops can free up my nervous system faster than just about anything, which I find, I find interesting. And a warm up I was playing around with for sprinting that I found pretty effective. And I'm sure there's several people who do this. I got it from Jeremiah Flood, but it's basically do a really long ISO lunge and then do a a lot or you know a lot could be a lot relative to people but then a bunch of altitude drops and then start sprinting and i was like that's a pretty good that's a pretty good warm-up so it's just it's interesting that's what jay used to do yeah 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 that's what jay used to do that's the juice um, <laughs> and, and again i'm not saying all that is is absolutely correct but there's there's some validity i look look at it like this when you hit the ground and you stop everything in your body is turning on proportionately that's what we're training. We're training a giant cylinder hitting the ground, and we want everything to turn on at exactly the same time. That way, compensations are gone. So it's only the, the true way to train that is, is falling low, is stopping something that's falling out of the air. Everything turns on proportionally. I think that's, that's a, and I think from a deep, deep-seated sense, the body understands falling and the bad things that can happen from falling. And even though, you know, you know, you're jumping off a 24 inch box, nothing should happen. Deep down, your brain says, dude, you're falling. We've got to get ready for this. It's no different than training, you know, a stumble reflex. Mm -hmm. 
you know, you know, you're tripping, you're good. You got to pull that foot through. Well, it's just a drill. No, your bot. That's why you want to add these reflexive things to our different drills is we're tapping into something that's very deep and very protective to use that to amp up that reflex so we can actually use it in a more athletic sense. Right, a couple, can a I couple, jump in, Dan? Yeah. You sure can. Just yeah. don't jump yeah, on yeah. me. If you stop eating. Just don't what? Oh, <laughs> jump on stop. me. Hey, hey, <laughs> what I saw last summer with 1080 doing overspeed work, and this thing just makes me crazy, right? Like, oh, I don't do it. You know, I don't know. Maybe some world-class sprint coaches still think you shouldn't do overspeed work, but only see phenomenal effects of it. But I tested a kid with some reflexes that were off, and as soon as we implemented the overspeed work with the 1080, those reflexes turned on. Yep. And my point to all this is to reiterate Chris's and Dan's points about being deep in the brain. And I would have to believe that altitude drops and rebounds turn on reflexes of the brain just for survival. Mm-hmm. That might be not, you know what I'm saying? Oh, so yeah. I, I saw it intended. So, so really, you know, that over Excel or that top end speed, flies with the 1080 the brain is going i am terrified but i have to turn everything on right i gotta go yep and here's the and the reflexes turned on i'm telling you i think the reflexes turn on with what we're talking about now two drops yeah i i agree completely it's it's that i gotta go and i gotta do it properly or else i'm gonna get hurt and i in with overspeed I've got little kids doing it. I'm not pulling that 14 meters a second or anything like that, but it's just enough impetus where it gets them moving. And then all of a sudden, all the really poor running form goes and all of a sudden they're pulling through on the ground. They look like a a Ken Clark type running style. Uh, And that's why I went to it so much because I can instantly put you into, you know, that scenario that Ken Clark talks about creating tangential velocities and, and pulling through on that leg. And it, it's a gold mine. It, it literally changes people instantly. Again, I'm not, you know, if they run eight meters a second, I'm not pulling them at nine meters a second. I'm probably pulling them at, at seven meters a second. But you tell them I'm pulling you really fast and they can feel that rope tugging on you. And again, I measure it. I know how fast I'm pulling them. It's not their fastest run. It just gives them enough where they can lift their hips up a little bit and get into that perfect running stance, which again, it's, I think I'm going to get hurt because I tell them, you like roller coasters? Oh, yeah, I love roller coasters. This is a roller coaster for sprinting. And so you create that scenario where they think they're going to go fast. I'm not pulling them any faster they can run, but it changes the way they run because, like they've said, it's, it gets into this, I got to be perfect or I'm going to get hurt. When, what I think he's talking about is the interplay between biomechanics and neurology. And that's, that's where we're starting to get to. And a couple of months ago, Peter Wayan posted – I think it was Kugler who had a study of body position oh, determines. Yeah, that Kugler. <laughs> body position determines propulsive force. And I'm thinking to myself, that that sounds great on paper. The best dudes, you know, get in those angles with the ground and they're going to have the best forces. But what about their vestibular system, right? Is their vestibular system allowing them to get into those positions where there's not a fear of bringing that foot forward faster? It's under their center of mass, so there's less propulsive force, right? So that's the interplay is, yes, you want to create those angles, but if your brain's not going to tolerate it because your vestibular system's like, "Uh uh-uh, we don't get our head out in front of our hips that far because then we fall and kill ourselves. 
Yep. If you start conditioning your body for that and your brain for that, now the biomechanics and the neurology blend. And because we're not doing video, I'm moving my hands together as it blends together. <laughs> as I say, if you guys want to see a loon, I can show you a loon. There's a loon out here. Norman, it's the loons. <laughs> it's the loons. You know, I think Cal started doing this last year with the 1080 where he was pulling people in a start. Weren't you doing that last summer, Cal? Yeah. And it was pulling people into the right position. Just again, it's, I think I'm going to go fast and I can feel that little nudge. And all of a sudden you go, all right, I got to, I got to do it right. Yeah. Dan, you had mentioned Jay Schrader earlier and mm-hmm. I had gotten you know, this idea as well from Tommy John, who's been on this podcast, just basically your emotional state is going to dictate a lot of the results that you get. And part of that is things that pull you out of your conscious mind. Like if I'm being pulled a little faster than I normally run, we, we talk about flow states too, being in the present moment. I just did a podcast on that. What better way to be in the present moment than being pulled a little bit faster than you normally run? Doing something yeah, where your brain... Your startle reflex kicks in. You're like, oh, shit. Yeah. yeah and, or, and, you know, I'm, I'm catching crap on Twitter because I got NFL guys running on the pave, on the concrete or on my blacktop or my street or whatever. But I don't care how good of an athlete you are or what level you're at. Once that kicks in, it works for everyone because you get down to that fundamental... I've got to stay alive. I've got to. I've got to do this right, or I might get hurt. Yeah, that's like the plyosoidal thing a little bit too. You know, even like the little pieces of track yeah. and trying to. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when you move something you, that you, much, but, you know. Yeah, when you move something that much, just this little bit, it's going to make a huge impact, right? So, I mean, and, again, we're talking about like Jay used to explain it to me like this: you walk upstairs and you scare your little sister in her room. Every muscle in her body turns on proportionately and she jumps off the ground. That those are the, the reflexes, those are the, the proportionate muscle activity that we're looking for when we train. And you can't do that with just normal strength training. This overspeed stuff stimulates that part of the brain. Boom. I'm gonna turn everything on proportionally because I'm gonna die if I don't. <laughs> yeah, especially I when think you when, overspeed over when, uh, the track, Chris, too, right? Like that's even amping that up even more. Yeah. Well, we went, uh, Kale took us on a tour on Sunday morning at the clinic two weeks ago. Kale took us through a workout of his goat drills and he took pieces, various pieces of stuff. I'm sure the maintenance people love it and threw it all over the track. And so as they're running through their figure eights and doing all there's stuff on the ground that's moving, you know, whether it's a piece of track or something slippery, but it amps up your system because you don't know it's coming. You've got to be perfect every time. And what was cool is Brody, his son, Bubba, he's done it enough where he hits some of those things. And you would think that a normal person that would fly out and shoot and he'd slip. His body dealt with it like there was nothing wrong on the floor. Like there wasn't something on the floor, which is what we want. That all of these variations that may happen in sport youth cruise through like there's nothing happened at all. And that's ultimately what we want to train with an athlete that, you know, you can throw whatever you want at me. It's no big deal. I'm, I'm going to cruise right through this. Yeah. That, that robustness. I, it makes me think too, the stumble reflex, Austin Yoakum mentioned something about like, uh, and this was in a game. Cause I know Dan, we had talked about just how like the principles of just how good, like a pickup game of basketball is for warming you up to jump. It's incredible. But he talked about like a football player be running gets hit still stays on his feet, but it's like in the process of coming off of that hit, like midair for like a split second, 
just falls into almost a better version, like a faster version mm-hmm. of that sprint. And we were thinking like, oh, like what if, what if you line someone up for a fly 10 and right like 10 meters before they hit the zone, you kind of like bopped them with a, you know, like something with a, like, a, like a football pad or something, you know, just to put them just to get a little reflex. And I've even was messing around a few weeks ago with like a sprint float sprint, but, but tight leading up to a fly 10. So I'm talking like, like 10 to eight meter exchanges, maybe even tighter than that, to be honest. It was a little bit random, but I found that shooting out of that, it, like the reflexive on off. It actually improved my quality of that final sprint. And I was sprinting just about as fast, if not faster, than if I would have just let up and kind of thinking about it, thinking about it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, I, I think Franz Bosch wrote about that a little bit. It's, it's, and, and John Pryor, I think Chris will talk about that probably. But it, it's that restoration of balance, right? Yep. So when you get knocked off, can you restore your balance and run? So you can now utilize that just because when you perturbate the body, now you're going to get co-contractions in your spine, and it's going to align you the best possible way it knows how at that time for survival. So, yes, before a flying 10, if you were just, boom, just a little bit, you're going to get stiffness where you want it. Yeah, I think yep. that would work great. So Yeah, there's lots of ways to do it. Yeah. Yeah, so we've these are always the best podcasts <laughs> when it's like I have a bunch of questions. I only get through like one. or <laughs> I think we can get through at least three here. So... Well, I do want to ask Chris too, uh, just before we get to some sprint KPIs and some gym, gym training stuff, uh, you had mentioned the different, seeing different things on the 1080, like different strategies. And I, I like that term. That's the term you hear in um, the biomechanics world and lifting biomechanics world a little bit. You know, this, this person had this strategy to make this lift. This person had this strategy. What are you seeing? You know, we had talked about the wide narrow ISA or the power muscle or elastic athlete. What are some different strategies that you, you're seeing out of athletes using the 1080 and with those things in mind are we talking over speed or are we talking uh you're pulling i was thinking more pulling i was thinking more pulling pulling. but if you have both i'll take both yeah both would be interesting so so acceleration well you've got the muscle people you know like you we never actually answered your first question but uh (laughs) the muscle people you know they try to muscle through it you can hear you know, a hard cling into the ground, you know, a hard pop into the ground and a push, especially when you get, when you get up in weight, but you're really reflexive people. You're going to see a lot of tendon action out of that Achilles. You're going to see that footwork really well. And they tend to do better until, unless you get really heavy, then all of that reflexive stuff is right out the door, which is why with my reflexive people, we don't go heavy because all of that all that snap that comes from your Achilles and it comes from your patellar tendon, all that you go too heavy, that's gone. And you're kind of like, well, I don't know if I want to really strengthen that to the point where they're not using their main thing. So you have to dial it back in where you can still see that snap on every step for your average athletes, for people who do not or cannot get into those positions with their lower body, you'll see an excessive lean you'll see excessive arm swing where they trick themselves into believing they're accelerating by leaning forward, but really they're not going anywhere. And that's what what I always find interesting is watch you tell people to squat deep or bend your knees or something like that. And kids that can't do it, watch how they change their spine postures to think that they're going deeper. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it's like, well, that's great, but your legs didn't change shape. Oh, sure they did. Okay, let me videotape you and show you how much your spine and neck are actually making you go lower. 
Oh, I guess you're right. Yeah, that's yeah. You got to bend your leg. Yeah, that that um, it's, it seems to fit with what Rick Franzblau was saying. Like the wide ass a muscle could do well with uh, like the the really turn up the resistance on that thing. They can crush it. But then you got a narrow, elastic, like springy individual, and if you have it too high, if he was talking about like a bilateral anterior tilt like response, but it's good to be able to picture it in different ways too. Like for like like you were saying, like their ankles are mushing more, like just their arms yeah. are swinging excessively because they can't, they're not managing it, they just can't manage it, and so it's nice and to I, have those other you know, other things to look at to figure that out. And 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 after seeing you know hundreds of people pull on that thing. That's why we came up with spring ankle model is I saw way too many high school kids mush out their feet and even at lower or moderate resistance. And I'm thinking, well, if the gun goes off and they go to a push, they're going to mush there too. You've got to have that stability and, and that isometric strength in that ankle before we can do anything else. Or once you've mushed, God knows where it's going to happen. Who knows where you're going to push to? Yeah. I guess, Joel, the big thing here would be like I'll give people example, you know, all the, and look, Chris's spring ankle is much different than like all these barefoot people. Right. And I'll give you the prime example. I did last spring. I did four weeks of GPP where we ran stadium steps, barefoot climbing steps, weight room circuits, barefoot. And we jumped right into a power cycle. And the majority of my athletes, feet were still too weak to absorb the force from their hip and knee pushing down. So I, I know all these barefoot things on the internet and I mean, they're great. They're healthy. It's, it's great. But even when I watch those guys run, they don't generate a lot of power. Let's be honest. Right. And elite humans that I've coached, I, I tell the story, I, I just put my thumb on their, their big toe and have them squeeze it. And in the one freak almost dislocated my thumb, my, my, yep. my joint separated. I could feel it. Right. So I guess the big point here is, is that the spring ankle that Chris created is much different than like the barefoot training. This is a high performance and, and I'm, I'm kind of given strength coaches credit because we're good at making our hip and knee, Joel, super strong to push down. I don't think many people's foot was made to absorb this much strength and force. And if your foot, if your hip and knee are driving down to your foot extremely hard and your foot strikes the ground. If your foot can't absorb that force, Dan said it many times, your brain will not allow you to hurt yourself. Yeah. So your brain is now down-regulating the force you generate. So my point is, is that if you do the spring ankle model and you have weak feet and weak ankles and then the ankle rocker also, you will open up that, you already may have that power just hitting in there. You will take the governors off that human and instantly see them faster and jump higher and run and run better because the brain now says, I am stable when I run or go to strike the ground with my foot. I will take the governors off. I've seen it too many times. You know, like even short striding. A lot of times people actually short stride, not because their hips are tight. It's because their feet are that bad and they can't absorb the force in the ground. They can't absorb the force. Their Ooh. body knows it's going to get hurt. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, that's the, and that's the funny thing is, you know, with all the kids playing all these club sports and travel sports, and, and I work in a high school and you see the kids on the crutches, what happened? I blew my ACL and all this. We're worried about, you know, this and that. Most of the time it's going to be, their feet can't absorb the force in a different position and it collapses and the body's always going to give up something 
distally. So let's say you're playing soccer and you've got your ankle braces on, you step funny, your foot can't take it. I'm braced up in the ankle. I'm not going to blow my hip. So what's next? What's the only thing left to blow? Your ACL. So I think, and going back to your original question with the feet and the hip, if you can tie those two together, I think you're going to have a much more bulletproof athlete where the two talk to each other. We spend so much time on the knee. The knee is just a hinge joint. It's really the foot talking to the hip, the hip and the hip talking to the brain and the brain's trying to say, all right, we got to navigate this. Uh, and this is all going to happen in six one hundredths of a second. I think there's something too about the, you, you call it the neurology of having strong feet and hands that actually upregulates the system too. Whenever I play more team sports, I am globally stronger and there could be for a variety of reasons too. You know, it's also social and fun and there's like just positive vibes with that. But I think that having, there's something about having strong, are they, I know that they've done research where like you do the training with fat groups. Kyle, maybe you even talked about this at some point. I'm, I've heard this stuff so many times, sometimes I forget who I heard it from, but basically train with fat grips. Then when you take the fat grips away, like all your upper body lifts are better because you had to like drive harder. There was more neural drive to the hand, just more neural drive, period. And I think the same thing exists in the feet. Like just, and if I've, I know for me, especially as a narrow and elastic for sure, but I think it's definitely true for everybody. But I, I definitely am, I'm down with that. I think that yeah, a strong set of feet and, and hands even, I, I think it really goes a long way. Think about yeah. this for a minute. A lot of people will talk about the biomechanics of the foot and the position that it needs to be in and the tendon strength and all this stuff. But if you start to manipulate when the foot hits the ground and you put the brain in a, in a position where it doesn't know when it's going to hit the ground, like when Cal puts those little things on the mat and they're at different heights, you have to pretense. Your brain is naturally going to work on that stiffness and the quality of the ankle. So then there becomes this interplay between biomechanics and neurology because, remember, your feet and your eyes set your posture. So both of these mechanisms are hardwired for reflexes. So we have to make sure we're addressing both ends of the spectrum here because, you know, oftentimes what we see as a foot problem could actually be an eye problem because how you are interpreting the horizon when you're running, right? Yep. So, so there's this interplay. And then in between that is all the co-contractions that happen along the way between your feet and your eyes. So there's a lot that can go wrong when we look at something and we go, oh, that's just my foot. Mm, might not be. That might be the end product of what you're seeing as a instability up top someplace. So, so one of the drills that I love to do is, is put that wooden dowel and put bands and make the upper body unstable. So then let the lower half motor organize. So it has to create proper angles, proper stiffness, because there's that fear of I'm going to fall on my head. So, yeah, I, I believe there is a huge neurological aspect to training those feet also. Yeah, with that. Dan, Dan, I'm going to take Joel's spot here. Yeah. And do you think that s- stiffness is... Hang on, I got, a, I got a point I want to make first. And Kel's just awesome. The best part is when everyone went in the weight room and Dan's got this on video. I hijacked the Zamboni at University of Minnesota. Dan's mm-hmm. got it on video. I do. Well, okay, great. Okay, back to you. Yeah, back to the stiffness. <laughs> I, I just think the, the, the brain gets, like, I think it goes back to a combination of fear and excited, Dan, where 
you know, I don't know if that stiffness is as relative as the brain trying to organize, reorganize and waking up. Would you agree with me on that? Um, yeah, I, I think there's a synergy, a flexion extension synergy that happens. Yeah. And that's, that's controlled at your brainstem level. That's reflexive. That's reflexive. So, yeah, I, I mean, it is it your brain sense. trying to organize it. Makes sense. Back to you, Joel. Yeah, I try to remember. I try to remember. Yeah. I took over I your try, podcast. I try to remember I what I was going to say. Usually, I don't like. I mean, I do occasionally lose my train of thought. I was like, I had so. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Actually, no. Okay, came back to me. I had two things real quick with the hands and the feet. Well, Kelly, you want to talk about me uh, hot wiring the zamboni? <laughs> I would like to see that. Maybe let's just if you can um, get a video of that I'll nope. put it on the okay, show and we put them in the penalty Chris, box. Chris hot wires the zamboni. <laughs> but I was going to say, you know, Kelly, you mentioned the the toes and. You know, it's funny, for a while I was on a thing where it's like, okay, you don't want the toes to grip because then you're going to the guardrails, like you don't want to be too get to late stance too early or whatever, and you know, people can grip their toes in a way that's not great. But at the same time, I I've realized more and more that someone who has strong arches tends to have strong toes. It's like the domes are almost geometric gradations of each other. I guess you get to the way the Fibonacci sequence works, it's like you get a big and then smaller sequentially. And any anyways. Long story short, is I, I, Chris, I think you even said it like at one of the TFCs, like the good sprinters have almost like a little hook thing under their big toe. And I was like, what hook thing under the big toe? And I, I kind of realized now, like I have a toe tester, Tom Mashad's uh, human locomotion. It's like a little, it's a thing. It's a little, uh, I don't know. It's just a piece of material that you put under the toe and it's a, a dynamometer type thing and you pull it away from the toe. And how strong is your toe? And I find that people who might not be that strong squat or you know whatever wise their toes are usually pretty strong and it's funny my my kids who you know you talk it's funny you talk about barefoot it's like yeah they go barefoot all the time they have different sensations and they're hopping all over the place too and and they're kids so like their feet haven't gotten messed up by too many shoes yet or, or other types of things but my my it's funny like i i'm I swear I'm not a crazy parent, <laughs> but I had like, my, I was, I got this thing. I want to test everybody, you know, I want to test everybody's toes in the family. And so I'm testing like mine and my <laughs> wife's. And, and then I, I asked my daughter if she wanted to go. She's, she just turned six and like pound for pound. Oh, wow. She, um, it's been that long. Yeah. It's crazy. It's, it goes fast. I'll tell you, but pound for pound, her big toe is stronger than I would say 80% of the adult males that I, that I test out. And it's funny. Cause I actually push like, I, I would push on her uh, like calf. I like trying to see. All right, well, can you push into my foot with your calf? And she's like, she doesn't know how to do a calf raise. Like she does. That's not her language. But she can push with her toes. And so can my son too. I mean, he's four, so he's. I don't think he really gets it. But anyways, long story short, is I, I look at what my children do from just a fascial perspective, an arch perspective, a bounce up and down perspective, and they have that toe strength. You know, outside of that, they don't know what a calf raise is. They don't really know how to do that stuff. But that's that's kind of built in the system if you're doing things the right way, I think, as a, a human growing up in terms of not wearing shoes and experiencing different surfaces and running and jumping all over the place. And then we lose it. So I've definitely gotten more on the, the toe strength train over time because I see that in really elastic and explosive athletes and then kids, obviously. I, I agree. I think some of the best female athletes that I have come in, you know, raw, have kids that have been Irish dancing. Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> I could totally see that. And the parents always say, well, what can we do? Blah, blah, blah. So first of all, I would take four weeks of Irish dancing. Oh, I don't know if he'll sign up for that. And then I would take some other dancing class. So you learn how to move and control your body under pressure. Isn't that what sport is? In a coordinated you know, pattern. In a coordinated pattern. 
I, oh, Irish I whiskey so does it to my feet, though, Chris. <laughs> Irish whiskey and then Irish dancing. Can we yeah, get uh, well, Chris hot wearing the Zamboni and then Cal Irish <laughs> dancing? <laughs> well, that's what happened Saturday night. <laughs> no. That'd be awesome. I Yeah, it was uh, Max Shank when he was on this uh, podcast like 120 or so episodes ago. It said the best, like a way, a great way to train elasticity was just turn on music and just hop and, you know, basically hop and dance with your feet for five minutes. And Yeah, I, our warm-ups this year for track, we danced. Yeah. Rhythmic and, and, motions heal your body. Yep. That's yeah. So everyone gave me a hard time. You know, I don't know everyone. I really don't care what people <laughs> think, but what are you guys doing? We're, we're warming up. Well, it looks like they're dancing. Yeah. Do they look happy? Yes. Are they moving? Yes. Are they moving rhythmically? Yes. Isn't that what we want to do? A little RPR and then a little dancing and we went and ran. Yeah, I think that rhythm rhythm and dance is healing to the system and it's <laughs> tuning to the system. I, I haven't been, there's two things that have warmed me up as good as anything. One is playing pickup basketball or just a game. And then two is some sort of like something that involves dancing or rhythm. Paul, my, my warm-ups with Paul Cater back about five years ago, like I, I swear I was jumping like six inches higher after it. He, he turned everything into a dance, like even medicine ball throws somehow became a dance at some level. And it's just like your system is so tuned up after those. But it, it, athletes, some, I'd be curious, Chris, um, you know, I, I have some athletes who love that stuff. And then some athletes are kind of like, eh, you know, you, you kind of like see how far they'll, they'll roll with it or how excited they get about it. But it's, if you can sneak it in there. Yeah. And if, if it doesn't work for them and say, well, what works for you? Yeah. Okay. Go do it. If, if that's what works for you, go do it. Like I had a kid that loved the static stretch. I hate static stretching, <laughs> but it seemed to work for him. And I said, yeah, if, if that's working for you, man, go for it. Yeah, if what, you think that's going to make you better. Yeah. Great. That's one of those things. Frequencies the system, and vibrations. You know? Frequencies and vibrations. Yeah. It's everything. It is like, yeah, with the complex system, Chris, like we were, you know, saying before, it's like, yeah, with the stretching, it's like you could be idealistic and say that's, you know, static stretching is stupid. And yeah, we could probably find a bunch of ways to say it's stupid. <laughs> but <laughs> if the person really likes it and feels good after it, you know, I mean. I can't, I can't argue with that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's shift to the weight room a little bit. I mean, all this stuff obviously, obviously super applicable in the weight room or altitude drops, obviously weight room thing, but you know, foot strength, obviously something, a gym thing or, or outside. Actually, let me ask you guys this. It's interesting what's, what's new is old or what's old is new in a, say, in a way. Uh, one thing I was thinking that you guys used to do, Cal, you mentioned with the ankle rocker, is a big thing I've been talking about a lot on this show is um, like, like mid-stance, like early stance, late stance, mid-stance. Mid-stance and internal rotation of the tibia. Like to me, I, I think about the ankle rocker and the toes-up ankle rocker, like especially. And I was like, oh yeah, that's a... Uh, like that stuff, I'd be curious what your thoughts are if you guys have advanced or how you're still using those types of things, like the the ankle rocker toes up stuff, uh, multiple foot positions. I know, Cal, you're working on that lately. Tell me a little bit about some of those applications to what's happening in the gym, be it foot training, single leg training, uh, and those kind of things. I mean, I guess, and let's just, if we want to take one example of an exercise like a glute ham, if people like that one, but. I, you know, I came with, uh, if they want to look on my YouTube page, it's angular shank loading model where we actually on the, when we were training strength, we have a more wide stance on the glute ham. We go to the very edges of my glute ham, which is a really wide glute ham, a foot plate. And then, cause if you watch somebody or a young kid, let's just take a young kid. You, you don't coach him to push a sled and it's heavy. 
as they start moving it, their feet are wider. And then they actually move their feet narrow as the sled gets faster. So my point is, is I guess you just look at foot positions from the start of the running, right? And so when we're in a strength phase, our, our stance are wide. And then we go with the mid stance when the power phases. And then we go with the more narrow stance on the glute ham in the speed phase. And it's for, that, that's on my YouTube, that, that, that perspective, the angular shank loading model, angular. But then how we roll that too, in all of those foot positions for wide to narrow, all three, we actually do a three, a three foot position there. We'll go uh, externally rotated, internally and neutral. And how far do we go? Well, basically, I put that on my YouTube page. It's the three-way foot model where we go about on speed. We go about 15 degrees max either way, because really a foot's running at a 10 degree angle internally and externally rotation. Obviously, Chris and I talked through that. And then another thing is the foot roll where we actually roll our feet to our, through our big toe. So you start with the force on the outside of your feet and roll to the big toe while you're so, so just that lift alone, those are the three things we're doing with our foot in if you look at the foot roll, I think I termed it the foot roll on my YouTube page. I have a three-time Olympian or two-time Olympian doing it on there. And you can see her foot strike. And she's doing a glute ham so hard and violently hmm. that she actually comes six inches off the pad when she comes up. But then when you see her come down and reverse that and, and go to re-engage her hammies and glutes, you can see her foot roll through. And it's only like the ends of her toes. But it, it's it's really fast, and I actually talked through it on the uh, the foot roll model of, of the video. But yeah, those are the three things that we're actually doing. And you talk about the toes up. Well, on the ankle rocker, I coach people to, on the way down in their squat, or we're doing a single leg squat or a step up, whatever it may be, you're lifting your toes up because you're trying to address the extensor arch in the foot and push your knee forward. And then when you go to reverse or before you go to reverse, most of them will slam their toe into the ground, flex it to close the correct glute pattern so that you fire the glute. And, and you don't coach them when to do that. They will, their brain actually starts to do it automatically. It's a reflex. Yeah, it's a, it's reflex, a reflex. Right? So, so that's oh, everything. That guy that's, again. Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly everything that's going on in the foot that we're coaching. And... <laughs> eventually you don't have to coach it because these, if the foot starts to function correctly, then they kind of do this naturally. Most of it, I should say. Now they got to hold the positions the way they want, but you know, ultimately it, it's when, and then you tie it into everything that Chris has talked about with all his KPIs and speed that he's found kind of match up with that. And really it's diverted from him because I'm not usually the first or second person he talks to about it with. I'm curious uh, with the with the wider squat stuff and like the 1080 or just acceleration in general. I, I think you had linked it to when you start when you do a start, you're a little bit wider as you come up in the top end, your feet get narrower. Yeah. And I'd be curious if people uh, I look at like football players a lot or people who are really like stronger athletes, maybe more likely to be a wide I say or, or just a change of direction sport. They compared to people who didn't play a lot of sports, they seem to be able to use more horizontal real estate than others when they're doing those first few starts and make it natural, you know, not like a yeah, right. crazy orienting side to side type thing. But I'd be curious if you've noticed anything with step width or, or if you guys have any thoughts with step width and, and weight room or physical abilities uh, in what you're seeing with, because athletes will do, have different strategies in the start, but I, I believe that a lot of it's based off your sport experience and what your body is capable of and your structure. So I'm just any 
thoughts with that with stride width off the start and, and doing like wider type stuff in the gym? I, I would say really weak kids they have very narrow starts. Really weak kids cross over when they start. Yep. <laughs> um, really strong guys, and, and uh, it, it's get that width. Um, I think uh, Rio Nagahara did a really interesting research piece where he looked at stride width in the acceleration phase with a whole bunch of different athletes and, and kind of showed the same thing. I don't think that I can take a uh, average athlete and say, all right, we're going to work on wide starts. I think that's something that has to be earned. And there's a whole series of exercises that you can do to get to that point. Some of it's in the weight room. Some of it's just knowing where those points are, but I don't think you can get that width if you don't have a really strong foot, because ideally you get that width because you are pushing off the ball, that big bow and well, that foot is really rigid. Right. And I, Joe, I, uh, I think Chris basically saying you can't coach that. No. That brain has, Dan, correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, but the brain has put that foot there because you don't have the power and the strength to or go the wider. coming out of the park. Yeah. Right. So your brain knows exactly where you need to step for your time. It's it, time of strength, right? And if you try to coach him to go wide, I don't think it's a coachable point. I think if you just take out a lot of glaring weaknesses in their training, through training, they'll widen their foot up naturally, right? And, and yeah. there's so many things that I think people try to coach that you shouldn't actually coach. I you think should, part of it too is your velocity at your zero step. It's like a wobbly bike a slow bike accelerating is going to wobble a lot because th there's no velocity to give it that trajectory. But I think you get someone who blasts out of there like a bat out of hell. You can get into that position because you've got the velocity to get the stability. People forget that velocity gives you stability. Yeah. There's also a fine point between being too wide. So when you, oh, look, yeah. at gate, mm -hmm. when you look at gate and you analyze gate, someone with a wider stance gate has a vestibular issue, right? So now you're putting your head out in front. If you had a compromised vestibular system, your gait's going to naturally, naturally widen. You see this in Parkinson's people. It's going to widen and you're going to start to shuffle, right? Sure. All these things base back to the brain and how it's going to organize movement through gait, right? So we want to look at it from a biomechanical model and how we're going to get to our big toe and this and that. But ultimately the brain's going to dictate how wide those feet are going to be when you hit the ground. Yeah. That's an interesting uh, element of it too. I, I, there's a podcast that'll go out before this with uh, Jeff Hauser, um, who's over at Duke talking about how elite sprinters have a narrower uh, width than sub elite when they're upright full speed. And yeah. it makes you wonder how many, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's a rotational aspect to things. There's also ability, you know, to, to have a looseness that's appropriate to achieve that. But it does make me wonder to look like, okay, is, is, is that a liability as well potentially for some people? Or if you just, you probably just watch them walk around. That might be the best place to observe if that might be a liability too. Uh, but just how do you walk? <laughs> how do and you, if you how struggle you watching move? people walk, have them crawl. Because yeah. the same motor deficiencies you're going to see when they crawl. When we yeah. talk you about see the big toe, crawl. Crawl. Because <laughs> you'll see people, you can get a great example of what their feet are doing when they crawl. I've seen so many people crawl and they're on their, they're outside of their calves. Like they're, they're pushing off their calves. I said, well, obviously that guy's got a bad foot. All right. We need to do some stuff with your feet because you can't even use your feet when you crawl. And sure enough, you get them up and running and you film them. It's, it's the same. It, it carries over. I'm not saying go out and do five sets, a hundred meter 
crawls on your big toe, but there's got to be an initiation back to that beginning of movement motor to patterns. revisit that. Yeah. Revisit that motor pattern. You don't have to do a lot, but you know, you do it a couple of times and it comes back. The crawling is a great indicator of something's <laughs> wrong, right? That's what it's telling you. It, it, yeah. And, and I, 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 like a lot of these things, I don't think you can coach the new foot stuff that Chris released in our course, right? Like you can't coach what, what Chris is talking about in many aspects because you don't have the tools yet to do that. And he gives you the tools, you know, I mean, I know coaches will be talking, Oh, shin angle, but yeah. But yet if you don't have the force to apply the ground, you can't reach shin angle, right? You have to have a powerful athlete to have a really good shin angle. You don't tell a, a horrible athlete to get a good shin angle. That's a good place oh, and, to see the brain stopping people too. Cause if you don't have right. the strength, the brain, it's very hard to get people to do that. And if they do get it, they'll kind of stumble out of it. It'll just be like their foot will end up way too far in front of their next foot because they didn't weren't able to support with that bottom leg at that position. And then it just doesn't look very good. If you could even get them to, I think they ask yeah. athletes who are really good risk takers, like they might be able to do it, like, but it just isn't going to look very good. And usually you tell them to, like, hey, I want you to start and let your shins drop. You know, maybe you start in a bilateral stance. I just want you to see if you can drop your shins real far and go. And they just won't. They won't. It's just not yeah. going to happen. No. The brain's Do you, ever take, a, do you ever take a kid and, like, you hold them up and you want to show the body position of acceleration. You just have them lean on you, lean on you. And the, they get so nervous, they automatically put their foot out there because they don't yep. want to fall. Right? So, again, it, it's, it's all what the brain's going to give you. I mean, you, what's basically happening is you're throwing your noggin out there. And your foot's creating a platform to land on. And based off of how your brain is operating, sending those messages, the brain stem and the flexion and extension synergies, that's how the foot's going to hit the ground. And that's the position that's going to hit the ground. And based off of your safest route, not yeah, I want to run fast. It's the safest route for your brain. I think that's one of the shortcomings of social media now is we're so into, let's see, one exercise. And this should be the cure-all. There's a long progression to get to these different positions that we need to run fast. It's There is no one step I'm there. You've got to take the steps to earn the right to run properly. And, and I think that's a key because the brain is going to stop you if it doesn't feel safe. It's, we can drill all day, but I'm just not going to get there. You've got to find the right tools to get the brain to say, this is okay. And now I can do this. I, I've earned the right. We've drilled it. We've built the skill. We've built the endurance. And then we've built the strength to be able to do this. And that's when you get the drills that start to carry over. Now, I love going to track meets and I see these teams that look beautiful in their warmups. And I'm thinking, oh, shit, we're going to get our ass kicked. Look at, look at them do their A skips and B skips and all that. But you never see it carry over. It's because we've, we've taught the drill. And we've never made the the transition into the actual movement. Yeah, one of the, my favorite back when I don't think it was in Dan Paff was on this show, but just one of my favorite Dan Paff sayings was back when the mock drills were really coming out in the eighties. He it was new, and like he saw the other team warming up with him. He's like, "Oh wow, these guys are going to kick our ass!" And he's like, "And then they didn't kick our ass." <laughs> <laughs> I always remember that. It just kind of cracks <laughs> me up. You know, Dan, something you had said back with, uh, shoot, it might have been our very first, I think it was interview eight, our very first one, or our very first one we did, was Jay Schrader talking about, like, if you're going to coach, and I'm constantly reminded of this, like, if you're going to actually coach somebody, like, you have to really know what's going on. And, and meaning, and kind of what I mean by that is, like, 
I think a lot of times we try to overcoach when an athlete isn't physiologically or neurologically ready for it. And then it's just like, it's like literally pissing in the wind. Like the athlete, like I'm, I'm starting to experiment with a few sprint constraints that I've, that I feel like really have a strong potential to develop a little bit of effortless width in this start. But there's a few roadblocks to it that if you don't have reciprocal hip action, you don't have reciprocal shoulder action, you're just kind of generally more compressed, you might not get it. And I could tell anything I want to these people, but coaching in many ways, actually coaching skills should be easier than I think we make it sometimes. Like it, it's kind of like you should just be able to say one thing and, and the preparation kind of takes care of the rest in many ways or letting the preparation, the environment work for you rather than sitting there and be like, all right, we'll try this. We'll try this. We'll try, you know what I'm saying? Just letting the, the system work for you a little bit and being, and, you know, I think along those lines, working with athletes, especially really good athletes, a lot of times words don't do it justice. It's body language that they understand mm-hmm. and they're going to come back, look at you. And you can just do one motion and you say, this is what you look like. and This is what you need to look like. And they can see it. And a lot of really good athletes can figure that out right away and, and they go. So a lot of times with my, at my track practices, there's not a lot of verbal communication. You know, they look at me and they're looking to, looking to see what my body's doing. And they're knowing I'm going to try and mimic what I just saw them do. And they'll figure it out. They're called mirror neurons. Oh, fancy mm. words for things we don't understand. <laughs> Mirror neurons. If you can watch it, then you can you can better be able to produce that movement, right? So you got to be able to watch what it looks like right in front of you. And then you do have these neurons that are wired that mirror the actual movement that you're looking at. You know how many times I've had people sit in front of each other with someone's got neck pain and they'll be like, uh, I can only turn my neck that far have someone sit right in front of them that has no neck issues, rotate their neck and they do that. And I'm like, all right, rotate your neck now. And they go, Whoop. just because the brain made that connection, synapses, boom, boom, boom. Here we go. That happened yeah. seven times. My guess is that's happened seven times. Seven? Seven. That's my guess. And a half. Seven so and you a have, half. You have these mirror images and that goes back to what we were chatting about in the beginning of the, of the, of the podcast where you're talking about hand position and foot position and how that might dictate or how that might show something someplace else in the body. That's it. Interneural coupling. Yeah. Yeah, What if I don't look good in the mirror? Yeah. What if I don't look good in the mirror? (laughs) Then you got problems. (laughs) (laughs) We were talking about this two weekends ago with Abby Steiner, where, you know, the people on the TV say, well, her arm is crazy and all that. And I think all of us here agree that that, that's a neurologic way that she creates stiffness in her system and it helps her become much more reflexive. That's her superpower. You start taking her arm away and you're going to make her run slower. I mean, it's no different than the Christian Lamatre thing. Well, once we get him in the weight room, he'll be a world champion and it, it backfired. Yeah. Honestly, even with Christian, I've been meaning to put it, do a video of, I need, like I was looking at his old, there's a newer one. It's like if you look at Usain Bolt's slow motion, it's like you know Usain Bolt and Lamater's right behind him, and some of Lamater's older videos when he was running nine nine two, he's actually more backside dominant from what I could tell, which fits with actually being a narrow ISA. It's almost like along with that, it's almost like everything tried to get a little more manufactured. Uh, yeah, he he was he had crazy feet in his early years. His feet yeah. did incredible things, and then the stronger he got he kind of lost his, his feet. 
they didn't look the same anymore. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, even yeah with Abby Steiner, super interesting. And sometimes I wonder too, like some athletes who end up with these techniques that are a little bit unorthodox or whatever. It's but they're they're it's almost like they're wired to be able to figure that out on a high level because not everyone gets to that place. And you know, even with the like the left side, a lot of people's left side that has more air, it's more expanded. You can work longer off that foot, and so the arm's gonna it's gonna fit with it. You know, and it is it's interesting. I think that I'd actually, I'd like to, if you guys have any, any other thoughts on that, I'd love to hear it. I, we are kind of getting towards the end here. And I actually would think a cool question to finish out would be, I know single leg strength, I know you guys have been you know, talking about the weight room a lot. And I'd like to get into, and maybe maybe I could just go with this as funneling it down, is what's one like single leg adaptation uh, or single leg training adaptation you've been doing in the gym recently with your athletes that you've really been enjoying as it pertains to sprinting, general athleticism, and why? You know, I was seeing some cool stuff from the clinic. So I, I, I'm curious to get your perspective on that. Mine is making, in your single leg training, making coordination a piece. Making both halves of your brain work um, together. So, again, everything that we're trying to do to improve gait or to improve someone's running or to improve their athletic ability has to make sure there's a coordinated piece to it. So if I am balancing on my right leg and moving my left arm, if I am doing something to make both sides of my brain work, Cal would call it his goat drill. I want to make sure that we have that crossover in training all the time where that um, corpus callosum in your brain is working double time. That's going to take everything that you do in the weight room and make it more efficient at giving you the kickbacks on the field. I'm going to steal Cal's fire here. And I'm going to say the single leg drill I like is I'm going to mix altitude drops with Cal's Yuri drill. That's my new favorite one. Stole it from you, Cal. Now you got to think of something else. <laughs> well, can you explain the Yuri drill? I, I, I saw. Well, wait a I, minute. You you stole the altitude drop Yuri from me. That I stole the Yuri well, from him. Well, yeah, explain the Yuri, please, that. too, before we get too much farther. I think we all know altitude um, drop pretty pretty straightforward. It may, you know, Chris, why don't Cal you explain? explain it? Okay. Okay. Uh, well, I want to hear from your perspective because. All right. So this is what happens. You take a band and you stretch it in, cro- in front of you. And then you're going to. In a rack, let's say. In a, in a rack. In a rack. Um, and then you're going to go through a cycle and you're going to step through and try to drive through that band. So you're basically, it's a resisted peak velocity type drill. And you can change the, the width of the band or the, the thickness of the band. But. The awesome thing about this clinic that we had last weekend is as one of us was up talking, the other two sat and we came up with ideas while that one person is talking. And then afterwards, we got together like, yeah, this is better. This is better. We're going to do it this way. Uh, Cal, that one sucked. Yeah, you're right. Um, and so I, we were I all. I didn't hear him say that. <laughs> I saw Cal making fun of me when I was up doing oh. my, my presentation. Oh, only because um, you tell tell the worst stories ever. <laughs> <laughs> About his so, flip phone. Yeah. So I, it, it was really great to get that opportunity uh, to do that because a lot of times when we talk, we don't talk about training. We talk about other things, but it was a great opportunity that we sat down and really honed these drills down. And I think with the, the Yuri drill, which is again, it's it's just a single gate single leg 
through a, a, a cycle and you're going to punch into that band. You can be supported with your upper body in front. You can do all kinds of things with your upper body. And then Dan said, this would be better if we dropped them off a, a six inch or a four inch or a two inch mat. And then you're, you have to deal with the fall. Yeah. I called it a standing uh, horizontal hip thrust. Basically, if you search that in some of YouTube page, but Joel, like when I first did this, we were, I think we we're doing 1080s or, or just running. And when I, so basically we did that drill and it's the top end speed. And then I had my athletes do a fly in the weight room or a prime time actually. And their eyes popped open about how much it changed the, the distance they could cover. They felt it. I didn't even have to like make them aware of it. You've so, got to put a lot of, you've got to put a lot of tangential velocity in that leg, to propel your body through that. Band. And it, again, going back to Ken Clark's stuff, which I really hope we had more time to talk about his stuff. That's the name of the game. Uh, and, and that drill does it in the weight room. And again, it's funny that you take a high school kid and you ask him, well, cycle your leg, just one leg, and they can't even swing a leg. And we're expecting them to sprint and put tangential tangential force into the ground when they sprint. They can't even stand there and swing it. So I think this is a great drill for beginners and advanced people because you have to go through the gate cycle and pull through to move that band. Or else, embarrassingly, that band snaps you back and you're on your ass. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because, I mean, I definitely I got very tuned on to horizontal movements in the weight room. like over 10 years ago now with the barbell hip thrust. But when you stand up and do it, you have the added benefit of what the backside foot is doing as well. I mean, yeah, it's just more That's right. horizontal force oriented. You know, it's like everything else in the weight room is it's just kind of vertical, but not in a way that vertical force actually happens in sprinting. And so it's like an actual chance to really get into that horizontal element and, and train some hip flexors too. I don't think we talk about that a whole lot. So it's like you're kind of getting... Kind of get and uh, was it Sheldon Dunlap all the way back on in 130, 130 something said something about like he called it TFL pops or just like you know just firing the basically just standing in a somewhat sprint position and firing that thigh or leg into a band and uh, it seems like there's a lot of different adaptations that you could use with that and then with the with the back foot being free or like like Dan had had that adaptation like throwing a little reflex into it you know that, that's interesting or you could do maybe it'd be interesting to do a few like. You know, a, a few regular and then a few with an altitude drop. I'll have to try that though. I saw that video. I'll make sure I, if there's a link, I'll post yeah. it in the show notes too. I think it's really Yeah, cool. there's there's a link and uh, it's the coaching it. There's three foot positions basically one that's forward, one that's mid stance, and the one that's behind you. And we call it, we name them a little different like drive, push, and or drive, thrust, and pull. But yeah, and we do, we do it in ISO phase too. So we just drive into the band and hold it for five seconds. And it, it, it's like lighting up your glutes and hamstrings. Joel, I, I had barbell lifts, uh, hip thrusts and all my lifts. I pulled that out and went to this. Mm-hmm. This is so specific. I've never, it, it, it's phenomenal. Yeah, the uh, motor learning that, that's occurring is ridiculous. Versus being laying on the ground, right? Yeah. That, that, and, that's I think, and if you're going to do that front position, you want a heavier band, but the more you move the foot back, the more you want a lighter band. So you're getting into... What I call your heel flick, the ability for your Achilles to snap that foot through. Because you go too heavy in that back leg, you're taking away all the reflex. It dampens that reflex. reflex. Yeah. It, it dampens that reflex. And you, you know, now you've got a slack issue. 
Yeah, it, I, I could definitely see a lot of athletes letting that heel drop quite a bit. And I'm pretty aware, even just like in an iso lunge, what's the back foot doing? What's the back heel doing? And then, well, let's find ways to t- make it a little bit more complex. You know, let's throw some complex hands. So uh, doing that Yuri could be a nice way to take, all right, now let's take that back foot and that that heel flick into a drive. So that's more that's more like sprinting. I, you know, Chris, I was going to ask you, you, you had talked about five years ago, maybe it's more, she was probably eight. I don't remember. <laughs> a long time ago about like, when you have bad weather and have to train in a classroom, you know, like what, what would, is that a, a drill that you would do a lot of if, you know, you're in that high school situation? Like, I'm just thinking that if I had a, a room or a basement, right. And I have to emulate sprinting on some level, I can imagine that could be a pretty effective thing. To that do would be of. really effective. I just don't why I didn't think of it in the last 30 years. <laughs> Cal well, had to come up with it. I know, and I'm not like, yeah. But it costs him. Look at how gray his beard is, and I don't have a gray beard. He I know. paid for that year he with paid, that gray beard. He paid, he paid, to, well, he paid to find that one. I'm, hey, I don't know. I just, I, the only thing I was worried about was getting Chris's approval for it, right? But, and then Dale told me to do it backwards. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's better for the brain. Yeah, I know it is. Well, do you hear you know that or do I turn it up? Yeah, no, but it's like, uh, but no, it's, uh, video. it's literally, and, and, and Joel, like for, if people watch the video and I, I named it to Yuri because Yuri Verkashansky inspired it. Cause they had, you know, those old gymnastic, uh, like poles that went vertical or, uh, horizontal on the gym. The gymnastic bars. Horses. Yeah. Gymnastic yeah. bars. Like yeah. I kind of got the idea from that where they were trying to do a hip movement. I'm like, let me simulate this in the, just in the rack. They, but, and they would, they would wait the Russian back. drawings to the people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they yeah, would yeah, weight yeah. the I'm back leg, and they they yeah. pull the yeah. deflector through with the well, weight same, on the bottom of it. Yeah. Same kind, but not. But but then the point is, is that you don't need to do it in a rack. Like uh, an assistant of mine has just left. He went to a high school, and they do it on the field, holding onto a fence, hmm. and they they pull bands and just hold bands and get to that position it's against the. Say, yeah, right. Yeah. So it's just when people see it, you can make your own shift variations of it. But it is the <laughs> single you, best transfer of speed. That I've you ever know why? Here, here's here's the key. It, it's teaching coordination. You have to coordinate where your hips are are on that band and the tactile feeling of where it is on your to where you're pushing on the back foot. Everything has to be coordinated, and it's and it's a motion that teaches coordination. And if you don't hit it right, you ain't gonna move the band. Yeah. Dan, right? Do you think? I but I think if I do twelve beers, I can still do the lift. So I'm gonna try it. <laughs> All right. Okay. All the, right. The, Yuri, the, the Yuri lift or like a, or one yeah. arm snatch overhead, like with like. You won't even be able to say Yuri after 12 years. <laughs> yeah. It, all, that, all that too, you know, Cal, you had mentioned you, you kind of tossed hip thrust for that. And I, I was recently doing a podcast with Rocky Snyder where he had moved away from that in favor of just more single leg that basically loaded up the spiral and got the glutes through the transverse plane. And you look at the research with the hip thrust and sprain, they're a little off and on. I mean, I've had good experiences with them, but not necessarily blasting and going super heavy. It's more like that's what gets you started. And then there's these other things you can go to, you know, like I, it's almost like this progression hip thrust and then you can keep moving. And Chris, I know even a while ago you had the, you know, this was another long time ago, but that 45, you know, glute ham, just something that with a barbell, just something that's probably oh. a little bit more active than that. I'm curious if you I, still use that. I still use that. I've changed a little bit. You know, I think you, you we do so much straight up and down glute work that we forget that the glute is a rotator as well. Mm-hmm. So I really like that machine. Uh, we do it single legged slight bend in the knee knee is out kind of like a bullfrog and just the ball of 
ball the big toe is on there and you're going to do mm-hmm. the, the lift that way. The frog, frog stance. Frog stance on nice. the ball of big toe. Nice. I'm going to try that. That sounds, that sounds like it is a glute torture even more than the regular version. Line up that yeah. diagonal, those diagonal fibers. You know, it's funny. My basement is a collection of stuff that gets thrown out by gyms because nobody used it, but it's really the most effective stuff. So four-way hip, 45-degree glute extension, glute ham, and MVP shuttle. I mean, that's I get away with a lot with those. I love it. All right, so before we get out of here, I know you guys just did a speed clinic. You guys want to chat about that or, or anything else? Uh, if people want to learn more about this stuff, find you in social media, Eric, et cetera, et cetera. If you guys want to talk about that real quick before we get out of here. Yeah, Joel, we can, uh, people can find that uh, clinic. It's called Revolutions in Speed, and we actually have it on CoachTube. It's, uh, it was just posted. It's about 12 hours of the stuff that we talked about in greater detail and much many more subjects. The amount of information, people aren't fully through it yet, even. And, because- and, and I think there's, uh, there's also a whole bunch of screencasts that we did on stuff that we didn't even present at the clinic itself. So I think there's another eight or 10 hours of that as well. Yeah. There's uh, too much information for somebody to swallow and it was a weekend course. So obviously people that came got access to that. And uh, obviously it's a, uh, again, it's on coach two. It's called revolution uh, revolutions in speed training. So it's, and really it's COVID it's, it's what transpired out of COVID for Chris and I and Dan, that we were able to talk a lot and experiment and, find things that that we actually had time to experiment with and then turn around and make them usable with our athletes when we were able to start training again. So yeah, it, it's a it's a pretty amazing course. Everyone that have uh, talked about it are are like, man, I'm trying this and that and they're making their own modifications. It's not like the end all be all. It it will get you thinking so that you can then apply things to your situation. Yeah, and it, it's going to make it like the future pretty bright, meaning we're going to do this again. And um, just having everybody together and being able to bounce ideas off each other as each one was presenting. Like I said, we're all great friends, but we very rarely have time to work together on things. And that that was a perfect time for that. And it was awesome. Joel, you're coming next year. Yeah, I would love to. Yeah, I was watching a a little bit of it before we did this. I actually, I didn't have time to watch the whole thing, but it was fun seeing what you guys are up to. So I, I definitely would look forward to the next time I get to see you guys all in person, man. It's been like five years. So, but hey, it's cool yeah. to sit down here. I, I um, This is always fun for me. Thanks for, Thanks having, for having us on, Joel. Yeah, thank you guys so much. It was a blast uh, catching up again. And it's always, it makes these, uh, you know, these evenings definitely worth it to, you know, it's like, man, is this time ready? I got to go to bed. So, anyways, <laughs> nice talking to you guys. Have a good one. Thank you again. Thanks, buddy. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in. Awesome to have you here. That podcast was so much fun. If you want to help us out, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to this podcast on. Uh, Head over there, hit us up with a review or hit up a review on our behalf, I should say. And I totally appreciate that. We'll see you all next week.